So we are in 1 John. It's a letter that you find at the end of the Bible. Mad props to Todd for taking us through um, 1 John last week. I was down in uh, uh, Lindenwood, um, which is St. Charles, Missouri. My oldest daughter graduated college, so some mad props to you, Reagan, as well. Thank you, Todd, for uh, filling the, the gap and uh, leading us forward. But we're at 1 John chapter 3 today. Let me set this up for you, all right? 1 John is a letter written in response to something. And, and, and I want you to understand what's going on here. John had written a gospel, and it's called, guess what? John, all right? Fourth book in the New Testament. And people were kind of messing it up. They were confusing it, taking things out of context. Do you ever do that with the Bible? Or you ever wonder if someone's doing that with the Bible? It's actually kind of easy to do. But people were messing it up. And worse than that, people were starting to distort the things Jesus had said. I'm not sure if he quite said it like that, or I'm not sure if he quite meant it like that, or, or they would kind of put so much energy into one verse alone that it would be done at the exclusion of everything else, and they were getting kind of messed up and messing other people up in the journey. And worse, people were starting to rewrite history. They were rewriting the history of Jesus. Nah, I'm not really sure he was like that. I'm not sure he really did that. I'm not sure he was really as human as we think he was. I'm not sure he was really as divine and everything in between. And so here you got this, this apostle. His name is John, and he is the last of the crew. All the others have long since died. And here he is, this haggard old man at the end of his life. And he's seeing what's starting to happen on the landscape. And so he writes this letter. And he writes this letter to this church or maybe a collection of churches who are kind of getting embroiled and wrapped up in all this confusion and people in their church saying weird things and all that type of stuff, right? And he writes this letter to bring him back home, to set the, letter, to, to set the record straight, to, to hone him back in to what he really intended in this gospel that he wrote, to what Jesus really meant by what he said, and more importantly, to set the record straight on who Jesus really is. So we're picking that up at chapter three today. I encourage you, follow along with me on this. Let me read it first. We're going to kind of go to about verse 10. And uh, then we'll come up for air and just digest it here a little bit. I'm going to start actually at 2 verse 28, all right? And now, loved ones, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Everyone 
who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Now, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Loved ones, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does what is right is not a child. Who does what is right, sorry, anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love God his brother. So, I set the stage. We kind of got the things there. I encourage you to keep it open because we're going to go back and look at some of it. But let me kind of unpack this for you because the Bible can turn into a lot of words while the mind starts to drift. It is predicated in one central truth. Jesus is coming back. He is returning. It is considered such a central belief of the Christian faith that from the very beginning, those early followers of Jesus even codified it into these creeds that people continue to say in every single Christian church or that undergird every single church to this day. Let me give you one example. This is called the Apostles' Creed. It goes way back when, maybe to the second century AD or something like that. Do you remember where it picks up? And I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Can you kind of do this on autopilot with me? Let's see if you can. Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God. Oh, you guys went off the rails. <laughs> from thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I mean, there's a lot you can say about Jesus. How do you boil it down? Well, they said, we want to get some really central things on the map here when we try to do like, you know, summary statements or the Spark Notes edition. Okay, I believe in Jesus. Who is he? He's God's son, his only son, and he's our Lord. Okay, we want to know that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. There's something miraculous and divine about this guy. But we also want to know that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he's human in every conceivable way, right? That he suffered in real time, in real space, under a guy named Pontius Pilate, just like you and I can suffer, and you can go verify the record in case you think it's made up. He died. He was buried. He descended into hell. Three days later, boom, he's back, risen baby, in the flesh. And later he ascends into heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of God, ruling this universe. And the day is coming when he is going to return. For those first Christians, those were the things to drill into. Those were the defining aspects of life to shape your faith, to live in such a way of knowing that Christ is on the throne and Christ is coming back. Everything 
John is going to talk about spills out of that. If you followed my lead and kept this still open, look at 2.28 again. John says, continue in him and who in Jesus. So that when he appears, you may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. In other words, stay in him so that when he shows up, you're not kind of sitting there like someone whose parents left the house for the weekend and you had some kind of raver and trashed the place. You know what I mean? Stay in him so that when he shows up, you can stand before him with clear conscience, confidently, looking forward to the day and not dreading the day, hoping for it and yearning for it. We were talking about this at 9 a.m. Like someone looking forward to their wedding day. Are you with me? I love the language that it uses. When he appears. Sometimes the Bible will talk about Jesus coming as though he is someone coming from a far distance. And that might be the case. Never really sure how close geographically heaven actually is. You, you, you know? But I think we're all inclined to think it's like, well, I don't know, I gotta travel through space for a while and then you finally show up. It's like going out to wall drugs. You just keep seeing the billboards, 500 more miles and it doesn't ever get any better. But sometimes the Bible talks about this in a different kind of way. It'll talk about Jesus appearing. And have you ever had those moments where there's something right before your face and you didn't even realize it? And then suddenly your focus shifts. Or suddenly something occurs and you're able to see differently. And you realize he has been right there all along. And you just haven't seen him it reminds me of those old magic eye things that were popular back in the 90s. You old people, do you remember those kinds of things where you'd look at like this digitally printed picture or map and it just looked like blur, but you would have to get your eyes to focus just slightly differently and suddenly like this three-dimensional picture. Remember these things? All right, all right. Sometimes I wonder if it's like that with Jesus. I am nearer than you think. I'm right here with you and by your side. But the day is going to come when your focus is going to shift. And I am going to allow you to see me and you will realize that I have been there the entire time. But now you're just seeing differently. I think of those post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. You know those times you could read about in the Bible when Jesus was like appearing to people after he rose from the dead and like people didn't even realize it? Like Mary is there literally outside of his tomb on the day he rose and Jesus is right there and it's Jesus and she thinks he's a gardener and doesn't even realize it's him because she isn't seeing quite clearly. Think of Jesus like popping on the road. He's like going on that pilgrimage with those two guys towards Emmaus. And he starts chatting with them and he's like totally stringing them along. It's great. Oh, tell me what happened. Like he doesn't know. 
You know, oh, really? Who's this Jesus guy? And he's just kind of like seeing what they're, they're going to spool out here. And then they invite him for dinner, and they still don't know who he is. And it's not until he does something that allows them to see differently that, bam, there he is. So John writes, continue in him. Because he's going to appear. And when he does, you kind of don't want to be embarrassed. Would you agree? Like he's been seeing me all along? I think this is the gist of what John is getting at. And he goes on to talk about why. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Now, maybe today it should say, how great is the love the mother has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Maybe we should be doing this on Father's Day instead. I don't know, but that's what it says. You get the idea. It's the love of a parent for their child. How great is God's love for us? And he pushes it, and maybe you can catch it. How great is his love for us. So great that he adopted us to be his. I'd have liked to have done this maybe before we started today, but it'll work anytime. It'll work next week when people forget everything on the stage. But go up and ask the average person, are you a child of God? What do you think they're going to answer? Then how does God have one and only son? I think sometimes we link into these cliches and the Bible wants us to think differently. Not one of us here are children of God. No, the Bible will call us children of the earth. Even an ownership of the devil. We're not children of God, but you know what's cool? It's cool on a day like Mother's Day. When you you see the love that a mom has for their child. Like a bear, you know, would fight for them tooth and nail in every step of the way. But you know what's also cool? When you see people who are not natural born children of that mom, but that mom has chosen them anyway. And to me, sometimes there's something even cooler in that kind of love. Because that mom did not have to take that child, but that mom said, I choose you. And I will treat you as my own. And that is exactly what God does to you. He adopts you as his own. Adopts you to be his child. And have you ever talked to families who have been in the adoption process? This is true to anyone, of course, that has natural born children as well. But adoption, I think, is even more the case. How is our family now going to live? Because whenever someone outside the family comes inside the family, there's all different kinds of values. There's all different kinds of patterns. There's all different kinds of things, a thousand details of everyday life, right? Of how the families will now live. I love talking to parents with adopted kids. I love hearing adoption stories. And they're often filled with a lot of struggle in the journey. Struggles because we're learning how to relate to each other. Struggles because 
you don't quite live the way our family lives. And this is what it's like with God. God goes out and starts adopting people of every stripe and variety. God has adopted you, and he brings us together in his family. And what John is saying is, now you've got to learn how to live. Better put, how do you conform to the way of the family set out by your heavenly father, by your mom and dad? And what's amazing to me is how so often over the weeks, over the months, and over the years, adopted children who look nothing like their parents, who have no similar background to their parents, start to become like them. I think of my wife's cousin, who's done a few international adoptions and some of the hardship that has come through that. And certainly the learning curves and the give and the take and the contentiousness that's happened over the years. And sometimes I don't want to paint it too pretty, not everything going well. But in other cases, how is it that this, this boy from Kenya is starting to look like this family from Indiana and talk like them and act like them and adopt their values as well. It's what happens when you live in a family, especially with parents that love you. So what does John write? He says this. Now that we are children of God and what we will be has not been made known we nonetheless know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because God has adopted you, but he isn't done with you yet. He is conforming you and transforming you. Or as Paul will write, he who began a good work in you is bringing it to completion and will bring it to completion on the day when Christ comes or the day when Christ appears. What marks children of God? are people who are becoming more and more like their dad every single day. That's what this is all about. That's what Christianity is. God adopting you and then saying, be like me. God has one and only son and his name is Jesus and he is like his dad. And God wants to make you like him too. And that's how we know whose children we are. Are we people coming to be more like our spiritual parent? Or are we people adopting the attitudes and actions, values and lifestyles of a different parent? Children of God or children of the devil, John will say. People of light and life or people of darkness in death. But the invitation is always this, to no matter who you are, that God loves you and wants to make you a child of his as well. And that's more than just a legal paper. It is the process of truly becoming like him, like the family, so that no one could even tell who is the natural born 
and who is not. And that's what John wants Christians to hear. And I hope that that gets inside you. And that you too will see that he's going to love you as you are. But that in your love for him, you'll seek to be like him. Get that, and I don't got to talk about 1 John anymore.